Well, uh, my, the clock on the wall up there is two minutes slower than what I show, so I think it's already 9.30. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Glad to have you all here. I am going to go ahead and pray to get started, and then we will jump into our book for the day. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning, for the time that we can look in your word, and I thank you for what your word has to say to so many different situations that it is not just one answer always over and over, but that you come to us in our weaknesses, in our questions, in our needs, and you accommodate yourself to us so that we can uh, have faith in you and trust in you and uh, be able to, to lean on you in times where we need you. And Lord, I just want to pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ who makes this all possible. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is our eighth consecutive week of looking at a minor prophet. We've been in the minor prophets for the last two months. And uh, the minor prophets are also known as the 12 because there were 12 different prophets. So there's quite a bit of these in Scripture. Uh, we have four more lessons to finish out the 12. And then we'll also have four additional lessons to finish out the major prophets. And as we go through this lengthy stretch of prophecy... I think it can be easy to seem redundant to hear the same message over and over in each of these minor prophets and the major prophets. It, seems, it can seem like each week we hear about a prophet who proclaimed judgment on injustice and on the sinful people and who offered hope of restoration for the future. And you can hear that message just week in, week out and not notice any differences. But I hope that as we go in depth into each of these books, you can see the unique elements that go beyond just that message that the prophets do share in common. God did not give us these books arbitrarily just to mount up the amount of witnesses, but really intentionally to deliver a specific message through each of the prophets. And this morning, we get to look at a really powerful, unique message in the book of Habakkuk. This message is one that I found to be incredibly helpful and needed, and I, I trust that it will be the same for you this morning. Habakkuk is at once a solid rock and a soothing balm that has great value for us today. And more than many of the other minor prophets, Habakkuk addresses deep, troubling questions that believers of all time have wrestled with, and that I expect you have wrestled with or are wrestling with today. The book of Habakkuk was written about a specific situation in the history of Judah, but the underlying reason for his writing is really a crisis of faith that is universal to people of all ages. So my hope is that this morning, rather than just adding another name to the list of repetitive prophetic messages, we will experience God's grace through his message and come away with a tool to use in trials and times of questioning in our own lives. So the way we're going to approach this this morning is to begin by looking at the background of the book of Habakkuk, then discuss the message of the book, kind of why he wrote it, what he's saying, and then conclude by walking through the outline of the book to see the specific ways that he communicates that message. So first, let's look at the background. We'll review the author first and then cover the date and the setting. And the book of Habakkuk shares its name with its author. The only mention of Habakkuk comes in this book, in verse, uh, verse 1 and the, in chapter 3, where he describes himself. So we don't have a lot of information other than what he shares about himself. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
And this tells us that he was a prophet who had received oracles from God. The name Habakkuk means to embrace, which is a theme that we'll see uh, become evident throughout the book, especially in chapter 3. And chapter 3 also may provide a little bit more of a description or a hint of Habakkuk's background and who he was. Chapter 3 is a prayer, and it is shaped just like a psalm would have been shaped. Verse 1 says that it is according to the Shigianoth, which is a musical term that's mentioned in Psalm chapter 7. And the word Selah occurs three times throughout the chapter, as it does in the midst of many of the psalms. The book also closes with the note, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And this was commonly included in the introduction to many of the psalms. And so it's possible, because of these similarities between Habakkuk chapter 3 and a normal psalm, that Habakkuk himself was a Levitical priest who served in the, the musical division of the priesthood. It's very possible, as many of the other authors that are identified in the psalms were people that served in that functionality as well. It could be, though, that he was just intimately familiar with the psalms, even though he wasn't a priest himself. And so as he knew the psalms and was familiar with them, as he himself had the same emotional reaction, he shaped his own prayer according to the psalms. Either way, we come away with the picture of Habakkuk as a prophet who had an intimate relationship with the word of God and with the God of the word. We can see that he, he possessed an incredible boldness and faith that allowed him, just like his name, to embrace a difficult message from God. So that's the author. Now as to the date and the setting of the letter, we can narrow down the time that Habakkuk wrote by looking at the content of the book a little bit. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Habakkuk complains about the violence, the iniquity, injustice, the wickedness that was all around him. He laments that the law is not upheld, and he asks God to intercede. And God responds by promising to bring the nation of Babylon to carry out his justice. Chapter 1, verse 5 shows that this would have been unexpected to Habakkuk, as God says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And from these verses, we can draw some implications that will help us narrow down when Habakkuk wrote this and where he wrote it to. First, since God is promising to execute justice through Babylon, we know that Habakkuk was writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had already been taken into exile by Assyria in 722 BC, while the southern kingdom continued on for over 100 years before Babylon finally came and exiled them. So this reference to Babylon means that Habakkuk wrote at least between 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. when Judah was taken. And it means that he was writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. Second, since Habakkuk was lamenting the wickedness around him, he was likely writing either before or just after the reign of King Josiah. Now Josiah came to power in 2 Kings 22, and his reign saw the nation go from an incredible landscape of wickedness from his father and grandfather, Manasseh and Ammon, and be turned into a nation that was reformed religiously as they found the book of the law. They found Deuteronomy. After he died, however, his, uh, his sons, Jehoaz and Jehoiakim, took the nation right back into wickedness. And so it's likely, as Habakkuk looks around and sees all this wickedness, sees this sin, 
he is looking and seeing the reigns just before or after Josiah, or I guess potentially during the reign of Josiah before they found the book of the law. And third, the third detail that we can narrow down a little bit is that saying that a Babylonian judgment would be unexpected when God says, you would not believe what I'm about to do, that indicates that Babylon was not yet a world power. Assyria and Egypt were the military heavyweights until the end of the 7th century BC when Babylon arose. And the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC pitted Babylon against Assyria and Egypt, with Nebuchadnezzar, the general of the Babylonian army, emerging victorious and establishing them as the dominant world power. King Josiah died in 609, four years before this battle, as he attempted to engage the Egyptian army as they went up to this battle. It was a a foolish decision that he did not need to do. And so if this book was written uh, to the southern kingdom, if it was written during a time of sin, either before, during, or after the reign of Josiah, and if it was written before Babylon came to power as a, a nation... Uh, it most likely would fall sometime uh, around the end of Josiah's reign or just after Josiah's reign uh, at a time where the nation was in sin, Babylon was not yet this superpower that everyone expected to take over, and uh, the nation needed to repent. So that is the background for Habakkuk. Uh, But with that understanding of the author, the date, and the setting, we can then look at the overarching message that is laid forth for us. Habakkuk was a prophet who knew and loved God and his word, and he was crushed by the sinful state of the nation around him. And that led him to come to God with a complaint. Rather, and and this this is what's interesting about Habakkuk that sets him apart from many of the other prophets, is that he was not taking a message from God to the people. Instead, he was speaking to God with a message concerning the people. He he was not the prototypical prophet who delivered uh, preaching to the people of Judah, but rather he was coming to God with a complaint of his own based on what he was seeing around him. And Habakkuk unfolds as a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk brings his lament and God answers him. One commentator described the book not as descriptive prophecy, describing what's going on, but rather as interrogative prophecy, where he's delivering prophecy via questions that he is asking of God. Many of the prophets looked on the sin of Israel and Judah and preached a message that called the nation to repent from their sin and to obey God's law. And Habakkuk looked at that same sin, but he responded to it differently. He did not speak to the sinful situation, He spoke to God. And each time Habakkuk speaks, first in in chapter 1, verse 2, then in chapter 1, verse 12, and finally in chapter 3, verse 2, he addresses God directly, saying, O Lord. He he is making clear who he is speaking to. Habakkuk wrestles with a perceived contradiction, and that forms the basis of the entire book. The contradiction is that what he sees going on around him does not match what God has said about who he is and what he does. Habakkuk sees sin and idolatry and wickedness. He sees law-breaking, injustice, and he sees those in place of righteousness. He sees sinfulness in place of holiness. He sees violence instead of salvation. And this is the state of God's chosen nation. But God had promised that he would judge wickedness. 
He proclaimed himself as a God of holiness, righteousness, purity. God promised to save the righteous and to help those who called on him in faith. And this understanding that Habakkuk had would have come directly from the Mosaic Covenant. And so Habakkuk wonders if God is going to keep the promises that he made to the nation at Sinai. Habakkuk repeatedly uses sensory words like see and hear, look, understand. And this reinforces the dichotomy of what he perceives not matching up with what he knows about God. His perception of God's character, his covenant, his deeds do not match what he sees around him. And this is not, it's kind of a similar situation to when we look at the weather report. And the weather person says it's going to be sunny and 75, and then you go out through, throughout your day and it's 50, it's raining. Um, it does not match at all what the weather prediction was going to be. What, what you see around you doesn't match what was told to you. And this was Habakkuk's dilemma. Only the incongruity that he saw could not be explained just by blaming the weatherman for reading the radar wrong. His issue was with God. Habakkuk's underlying question throughout the book is, God, are you who you say you are? That was the question that he was grappling with. His perception of the world around him did not match his expectation of God's character and his promises, and so doubt crept into his mind. We see him wrestling with the possible implication of these inconsistencies, and he asked questions that many of us have likely considered. Look at the rampant injustice all around Is God really righteous? Look at the wickedness, hypocrisy, and disregard for the law by those who are called God's people. Will God truly judge sin as he promised in his word? Look at how the helpless and innocent are mistreated. Does God really love the poor and needy? Hear how we call out to God for help. Does he hear us? Will he be faithful to his promises to save us? Is he sovereign and powerful to act? Habakkuk comes to God boldly with these questions, and God answers him. And in this, we can find a boon to our own faith, because when Habakkuk comes to God with these issues and questions him and even uses the word that he is bringing a complaint to God, God does not rebuke him. God does not dismiss him. He answers him. And for a variety of different reasons and circumstances, I think that we have all had similar questions, similar responses that Habakkuk had. If we've ever thought, God says he is loving, so why doesn't he act and save me from this situation? Or God says he is with me, but it doesn't feel like it. Where is he? God promises to judge sin, but it is rampant all around me. Is he really just? Is he really powerful enough to deal with this? Is he really faithful? And this is why Habakkuk is so beneficial for us, because Habakkuk teaches and shows us how to deal with these questions. We need not grit our teeth, shrug our shoulders, and ignore these soul-rending questions. And we must also not turn on God and blame him in accusation and distrust. Rather, Habakkuk shows us that we do not have to ignore our doubts or distrust God because of them, but that we can bring our questions to God in faith and find the answers that we seek. 
Habakkuk raised questions that were directly out of God's word, and he sought to understand how God could seemingly say one thing and do another. And God endorsed his questions by answering him and unfolding more of his character, more of his sovereign plan. In God's answer, he promises to act. He promises to judge the wicked, to save the righteous, to save his people, and to magnify his name. And so Habakkuk provides a model for us for how to respond, uh, both in his questions, but also in his response to God's answers. When Habakkuk cannot comprehend the magnitude of what God is telling him, when he's overwhelmed by the answer, he believes God. He believes that he is faithful and that he will trust him. And though he does not understand, he can believe. Though he is terrified of God's intended course of action, he actually ends by rejoicing in God. And so with that background, understanding Habakkuk, with that message, uh, the content of what he's saying, I'd like to walk through the book to be able to see how he unfolds that and see the specifics of both his prayer, God's answer, and then Habakkuk's response. So let's look at the outline. Uh, in Habakkuk, there are five major sections. There are three that make up chapter one. There is another section that makes up uh, chapter two, and then the final section is in chapter three. The first of these sections occur in chapter one, verses two through four. And after introducing himself in chapter 1, verse 1, Habakkuk gives us his first complaint. That's the first section, Habakkuk's first complaint. I'll read verses 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And you can notice the sensory words here that we mentioned before. Habakkuk cries for help, and God does not hear. Habakkuk sees iniquity and asks God why he looks idly at it. Habakkuk sees destruction, violence, strife, contention before him, while the law is paralyzed. Habakkuk was a student of Scripture, and he knew that God had promised all throughout the Pentateuch, especially in chapters like Deuteronomy 27 through 30, that God would judge those who broke the law. And yet God seems silent, and the law seems to lay powerless. What Habakkuk sees in Scripture does not match what he sees around him. And so this is where these questions creep up. He would be saying, is God faithful? Why hasn't he kept his word? Isn't God holy? How can he tolerate this sinfulness? Isn't God just? Why hasn't he judged the wicked? Does God love his people? Why doesn't he save them? Is God sovereign? Does his lack of action imply that he doesn't have the power to do what he wants? These are the real raw questions that the prophet brings to God. And God gives him a real, honest answer in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. This is the second section of the book. After Habakkuk's first complaint, we see God's first answer. As Habakkuk raised questions about what he saw and heard, God answers with sensory words of his own. He says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, 
For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And what God is doing is he's telling Habakkuk that he's asking the right questions. And then God answers them. He says, yes, I am faithful. I will keep the promises of my word. Yes, I am holy. I will not tolerate the sin of this people. Yes, I am just, and I will judge wicked Judah. Yes, I am sovereign, and I will do an astounding work through unexpected means that you do not understand. And God spends the rest of his answer in verses 7 through 11 describing the unexpected means that he will bring about his plan. God is going to use Babylon, the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation. They were growing in power at this time and conquering the nations around them. And they were dreaded, fearsome. They had their own system of justice, or injustice, you could say. Their military might was unparalleled. They were swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves, hunting like the eagles. They scoffed at other nations, and they brought with them violence and destruction. And God concludes his description of this pagan nation by calling them guilty men whose own might is their God. This is what God had in store for Judah. Yes, he would judge sin with his, uh, that was committed by his chosen people, but he would do so using an idolatrous, guilty, violent nation. What he's saying is that this judgment is not going to be a slap on the wrist. This is not a verbal warning to Judah. This is wholesale destruction. This is God acting on his promises in Deuteronomy that he would utterly punish his people by sending them into exile if they disobeyed his law. And this left Habakkuk with a whole new set of questions. After God had answered his first set, and by giving him this answer of how God was going to use the Babylonians, Habakkuk is not satisfied, but perhaps even more confused. And so this brings, the, brings us to the third section in Habakkuk, which is his second complaint. And this is in verses, uh, chapter, one, verses tw- chapter 1, verse 12, running through chapter 2, verse 1. This is Habakkuk's second complaint. He begins by responding to God's answer. In, in verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk is affirming these truths about God. He is from everlasting. He is holy. He will preserve his people. He is sovereign and ordains all. He is the faithful rock. He's affirming these truths about God for two different reasons. One, he's preaching these truths to himself to help himself believe that these things are true because what, he's, what he had seen around them caused him to doubt them. But second, he's setting the stage for his second round of questions. And these begin in verse 13. He says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In the second complaint, he's asking God, if you are good, if you are faithful, merciful, and holy, and and pure, how can you do this? 
how can you do this plan that you have with Babylon? Habakkuk came initially to God asking about his justice, his holiness, his love, and his sovereignty. And he asked, are you there? Will you act according to this character? But then when God affirms his presence and describes how he will ask, Habakkuk's questions change. They change to, God, how can you be just if you are going to decimate the righteous along with the wicked? How could you be faithful to your promise if you're going to destroy Judah? How could you be loving if you are bringing this level of violence and destruction on so many innocent people? How can you be holy if you are using an idolatrous, sinful nation? He's moved from the question of, God, will you act, to, God, why are you acting in this way? He's moved from, where are you, God, to, how could you, God? And so he has gotten somewhat of an answer, but he is still not settled. He has also moved from asking God to uphold the Mosaic Covenant, where he promised to, to bless the, those who obeyed the law and to judge those who disobeyed, to now asking God to uphold the Abrahamic covenant, where God promised to bless his people and to curse those who curse Israel. Habakkuk could not synthesize God using Babylon to destroy Israel with God's promise to Abraham. And in verses 14 through 17, he explains his concern further as he affirms God's sovereignty, but then points to Babylon's wickedness. He says, you, talking to God, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, now talking about Babylon, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Babylon catches the nations of the world like fish in the net of their military power, and then they turn and worship the net. If God is sovereign, why use this nation that ascribes the power that he gives them they ascribe that power to themselves. If God loves his people, how can he endorse this merciless slaughter? And put yourself in the sandals of the prophet. He has just been told that his nation, his people, his friends and family will soon be decimated by a ruthless, bloody, violent nation. Not only is he grappling with his faith in God... He's now gripped with pangs of grief and sadness at the coming judgment on the people that he holds more so dear. He really needs God now more than he ever has. And he ends his complaint in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is not willing to leave without an answer. Like Jacob, he will wrestle with God until he is satisfied. What's interesting is that we're not told how long he waited. It's possible that he got an answer quickly, but it might be more likely that he waited days and weeks, perhaps even years, before he received an answer. 
As we come to God with similar questions and doubts, we should follow this same pattern, watching attentively and expectantly until he gives answers. Do not give up hope. We can be encouraged to do that because we can see that Habakkuk's patience was rewarded. The fourth major section of the book comes in verses 2 through 20 of chapter 2. It takes up the bulk of chapter 2. And this is God's second answer to Habakkuk. This unfolds in two different parts. God begins with a general word in verses four, excuse me, verses two through four. It says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God has first spoken of how he will judge Judah through Babylon. But he also, which he reveals in the second answer, he also has a plan to judge Babylon. And this is the vision that awaits its appointed time. It will take time to develop, but it will come to pass. Therefore, Habakkuk must wait. Just like his patience was rewarded in waiting for God to respond to his complaint, so also will his faith be rewarded if he trusts in God's plans. And verse 4 is truly the heart of the entire book. God says that Babylon, he, is puffed up. He is proud. He is unrighteous. And their sin will lead to death. The impudent attitude of Judah is reflected here as well, as their own pride and unrighteousness led them into exile and led them to death. But by contrast, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, like Habakkuk, would find life by trusting in God. And this verse, which was quoted by Paul in Romans and Galatians, is one of the most influential verses in the life, of, life and conversion of Martin Luther. It speaks to the spiritual truth that justification and spiritual life comes by faith alone and not by works. But it also speaks to the reality that in the face of impossible sorrow and doubt, God's people can trust him. God promises life to those who hold on by faith. And in these words, God is also appealing to the Abrahamic covenant. God had made a promise that seemed extravagant and unbelievable to Abraham, and yet how did Abraham respond? He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God also shows that he will keep his promise that he made to Abraham to curse those who curse Israel. As God calls Abraham to trust him, he unfolds his assessment to Babylon, assessment of Babylon, and unfolds his plans to judge them. And this is really the second half of God's answer. After giving this general word and calling Habakkuk to respond in faith, he then explains why he is going to judge Babylon and how he will do so. And he does this uh, in verses 5 through 20 by giving five different woes to Babylon. Verses 6 through 8 can turn the, contain the first woe. And this is an invective against their extortionary trading and lending practices. Because they have plundered many... More will plunder them. The second woe is in verses 9 through 11. 
And this speaks against their greediness and against their arrogance. He says that though they hide themselves high up in fortresses, even the stones of their fortifications will cry out in judgment against them. The third row is in verses 12 through 14. And here Babylon asserts their dominance by wicked bloodshed. But God will assert his dominance as he fills the earth not with blood, but with the knowledge of his glory. Verses 15 through 17 contain the fourth woe. And this speaks to Babylon's sexual immorality. They have abused others for their own lust, and their shame will come back on their head. They have reveled in drunkenness and will soon drink themselves drunk on the cup of God's wrath. And it's interesting that God would proclaim that they would drink judgment upon themselves because at the fall of the Babylonian Empire, which is recorded in Daniel chapter 5, we see the story of the writing on the wall when King Belshazzar drunk himself into a stupor and arrogantly ignored God's message of judgment. And he fell that very night to the Persian enemy. This prophecy from God in Habakkuk was answered very specifically. The fifth and final woe is in verses 18 through 20. And here God condemns Babylon's idolatry as they worship themselves and their might. And in a glorious crescendo, God really speaks to the futility of their idolatry. In verse 18, he says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. You can hear God uses more sensory language here. God mocks the Babylonians for speaking to speechless idols. They are mute and deaf, but not so God. Listen to verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Babylon cries out to these unhearing, unspeaking, unseeing idols. But the God who hears and sees and speaks sits in his temple and commands all others to be silent before him. The one true God is omnipotent, holy, jealous for his glory, righteous to judge wickedness, faithful to his covenant, and sovereign in his power. And this is Habakkuk's God. This is our God. This is the God who hears our prayers, who hears and sees our doubts. This is the God who answers in his word. And God is making a significant statement here. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. To Babylon, this is a reaffirmation that God will judge them. No question can remain of God's sovereignty, his power, his purity. He will not suffer their wickedness. But to Habakkuk, there is more than just an affirmation of righteousness. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence. God is saying, I hear you. Don't worry. Trust me. I am here. I know you. I love you. And I will save you. Be still and know that I am God. And how does Habakkuk respond? He responds in prayer. The final section of the book 
is the entirety of chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. And it contains Habakkuk's prayer. Again, this is the prayer that bears the marking of a psalm. And just like the psalms, it serves as an emotional outlet filled with references to truths about God's character, truths about his deeds. And it is Habakkuk's response, his method to direct his emotions to that right response. In verse 2, he begins similarly to the first words of his second complaint. He reminds himself of truths about God. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk has heard. He reiterates his fear of the Lord and implores him once again to follow through, to keep his promise, to show mercy. Habakkuk then spends the bulk of the chapter, verses 3 through 15, rehearsing God's actions that he had done in the exodus and in the conquest. And he does these to show that God has acted faithfully in the past. Habakkuk testifies to the awe-inspiring glory and splendor and light that characterize God's presence on Mount Sinai. He refers to the ten plagues and recalls how God had conquered the nations of Canaan, driving them out for Israel to take the land. He speaks of how God brought the Jordan River and and the Red Sea into submission, how he caused the sun and the moon to stand still, how he destroyed the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. Habakkuk addresses God as everlasting, calling to mind God's self-identification as I am who I am. And he recalls even earlier truths in the Exodus in verses 13 through 14. He says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And this is a reminder of God's promise in Genesis 3.15, that he would crush the head of the wicked through the seed of the woman. God had consistently saved his people, as he did through the Exodus, and God would continue preserving his people until he sent them the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God had crushed the heads of many enemies before, and he would bring the ultimate crushing through this anointed one. And by recalling the exodus, by recalling the conquest, by recalling even God's promises in Eden, Habakkuk is showing us how he is grappling with these difficult truths. He grapples with thanksgiving and worship. He cannot comprehend what God promises to do through Babylon. But he can look back on God's track record with Israel. He can praise his faithfulness, his power, his glory, Habakkuk struggles with the present and the future, but he knows the past, and he reminds himself of that past. In the final verses, we really see Habakkuk's inner turmoil laid out clearly and honestly. Verse 16 says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. These words are amazing to me. Habakkuk hears, he perceives what God has said about himself, and he hears what he has even rehearsed to himself about God. 
and what he hears causes him to tremble. It causes him to quiver in uncontrollable pangs of sorrow, and he is overcome. Yet, he quietly waits for God to keep his word. This is not a flippant response that ignores the reality of the situation and just moves on with the don't worry, be happy attitude. This is a deep, heartfelt response that acknowledges the impossibility of what lies ahead and still chooses to trust God. Habakkuk knows that God will use Babylon to judge Judah, to destroy Judah, to kill many of the loved ones that he had, and to spread this wickedness to the ends of the earth. And yet, he will wait. He continues in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. When I read that, I cannot help but hear the prayers of other faithful sufferers in Scripture. Job prayed, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Habakkuk prays, though all of life be taken away, though everything I love will be destroyed, yet I rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk lands on God's strength and salvation as the places in which his faith can rest. He ends not on a note of resignation, but a note of rejoicing. As God promised, the righteous will live by their faith. And Habakkuk responds to God's message in faith. And as a result, he found life. Many of us come to God with similar prayers as Habakkuk. And the circumstances of our lives prompt us to ask, Where are you, God? Why aren't you acting? Why did you do this? And the book of Habakkuk encourages us to bring these questions to God. And then to trust his answer even when it isn't the answer you wanted. Maybe especially when it isn't the answer that you wanted. Whatever your question, whatever your prayer today, Habakkuk shows you how you can draw near to God and make it known to him. Search the scriptures for truth about who God is, about what he has done, about what he has promised to do. Preach these truths to yourselves and cling to them as did the prophet. And in the end, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the God of your salvation. Respond in faith and live. That's all we have today. You're dismissed.